Welcome, welcome everyone. This is Kingdom in Context, and I'm your host, Sean. I want to thank you all for joining me for the live stream tonight. We have uh, quite a few familiar people in the crowd. I just want to say hello. Tracy Jones, Little Hat, Country Fun, Miss Marsha, Robert Diesbeck, Barb Murphy, Created by the Most High, Christy Crow, Fear AR, Michael Finn, Bonnie Bond, uh, Bonnie Bond, no hard feelings, sister. I'm not even not even sure. I have so many people that are harsh with me that uh, I just I just try to do what Yeshua did. You know, you just uh, with one arm you're loving people, with the other arm, when people get out of pocket, you just got to give them the stiff arm until they can get right. Um, otherwise, I just try to love everybody at all times. I lend praise Yahuwah. Welcome back, Beetlejuice is back. Love Yah is back. Chico 1985, Jasmine Williams. Welcome, everyone, and so many more. Thank you guys for being in the live chat tonight. And my wife, Elle Wilkins, thank you for being here. Um, <clears throat> tonight, guys, we're going to be talking about the book of Galatians, and we actually are going to be doing a contextual review of the book of Galatians. I'll be using our contextual study guide that we've been talking about here on the channel that uh, you probably saw the advert for coming in to the video. Um, and that's in the video description below as far as if people want to go to Patreon and get early access to that while we're actually still building it, still creating it. You can, I think we've already completed 12 books so far. So and I got another four that I'm about to release. And um, and yeah, we're just it's an ongoing process and you guys can get early access to it. Uh, the goal is that eventually I'll have all 100 plus books done and it'll be just a large volume that you can have. Um, but for now, we're just we're chugging our way through. So if you guys, um, that's what we're the resource that we're going to be using tonight, in addition to some slides that I'd made. But what we wanted to do to talk about tonight, it, the whole concept here is this book of Galatians is, it's held on a pedestal amongst modern seminaries. And there's a reason for it. It goes back to around the 1500s uh, for that. We're going we're gonna to show you some clips and talk about that a little bit during this, during this show tonight. And people take the book of Galatians as if it's the only book ever written in Scripture. Um, and it's funny because it's not technically a book. It's just a letter that Paul wrote, you know, as an apostle to disciples, to his disciples in the churches of Galatia. You know, he just wrote a letter to them. But <clears throat> we, we commonly refer to most of the letters in the New Testament as books. And it's very interesting because people, specifically seminaries and lots of, of church pastors and teachers and leaders, they've um, they've definitely put this particular book on a pedestal and made it feel and, and give it this sense of weight that uh, they claim will supersede anything that Yeshua said, that's our Messiah, anything that any of the law and the prophets said in the Old Testament, or anything that God told them. Because remember, they, they didn't really say anything. They're just repeating the words that God told them. It's it's a unique phenomenon that we've seen grow and be uh, become a real strong character trait of many churches in the modern 20th century and now 21st century Western churches, and it did come from the Reformation. This whole thrust and it's and it's continually propagated by seminaries. So the reason I say all that is tonight we are going to be looking at a specific pastor. I don't want to. This is not to. Uh, bash this pastor, and if and anyone that's watching this, guys, if you've if you watched our videos in the past, if you know what we teach, what we talk about, you've seen us break down the scriptures pertaining to Galatians. You may have already seen our entire series, our playlist. Have you read Galatians? We have a, a four part series that we did. Um, please just try to keep the comments loving, and uh, because we know it can be very frustrating, the things that we're going to hear tonight. 
can be very, very frustrating uh, because it's just taken so wildly out of context. There is, um, it, it's amazing because we think to ourselves, surely a grown man who has the ability to read the Bible would not do this with the text. Surely they wouldn't take it out of context so heavily. It seems, it seems strange, you know, but we have to remember guys with all respect, if you're a pastor watching this, we're not trying to bash you. Um, I went to Bible college, considered going into full-time ministry as far as being a pastor, or, you know, some people view me that now, even though I don't view myself like that. I'm more like a teacher of the scriptures. So we understand what you go through. We understand, I do at least, I understand what you go through as far as the, the sacrifice you've made in your life. You could have went and gotten a regular job, but instead your, your life in most cases for most pastors is not easy because you've decided to serve God in the way that you thought was best in the way that as you were a young man, you were told this is what you have to do to serve God. So I just want you to know that I'm going to be talking about some things that if you're watching this and you're a pastor or a teacher or a leader in a church setting, you may have said some of these statements yourselves. I will be refuting those statements with scripture. And I want you to know that this is not a slam against you. Lord willing, it's a an opportunity for all of us to grow. But these statements are just, not only are they, are they incorrect to the actual passage to being misquoted from, but they're incorrect to the entire work of Paul himself, as well as the other apostles who approved of Paul in the New Testament. It's incorrect to the entire message of the gospel of the kingdom that Yeshua, our Messiah, and all the prophets spoke and preached. But for some reason, the seminaries that trained you and ordained you tell you you must teach this stuff. This is what they said is sound doctrine. And many times they tie this to your sense of what the gospel is. This is why tonight we're going to be talking about not just the idea of what's a Judaizer, but also what is the gospel of grace. But we're going to be talking about the idea of the gospel itself, what truly is and Paul is consistent in all of his letters with how he talks about these things. The preaching about what, what many pastors infer Paul is talking about is wholly inconsistent with the rest of Paul's letters. So the, it's, it's fascinating to me because it's like they've actually could have taken, they could have taken um, the book of Acts and kind of done the same thing with it if they wanted to, but for whatever reason, uh, over time, people just held up the book of Galatians and made this entire movement, if you will, amongst Christianity uh, to where it seems to supersede all other things. And uh, we're going to be talking about that because it does go back to Martin Luther. So real quick, guys, we're going to do a, uh, a cold. Oh, this is not quite a cold open, but for the sake of this material, it might feel like it. And it's uh, I just want you guys to remember that we, we want to speak positively, control your fingers as they type. If you're in the live chat, we're going to be listening to some frustrating things. Trigger warning. All right, guys, here we go. I'm going to be stopping it periodically. We'll be going over scriptures and slides. Now, I don't know what your favorite book in the Bible is, but... Um, it might be Galatians. If it is, raise your hand. It's your favorite book in the entire Bible. Raise your hand. Wow. So there's a few. It was one of Martin Luther's favorite books. The tone of Galatians is, well, much different than 
many of Paul's other letters. He begins immediately by defending his apostleship. Paul, an apostle, not by men nor through man, but it's from God. And that is because he is addressing in this church that he himself founded in Galatia, he is addressing a problem. A problem that is affecting his own personal relationship with that beautiful group of church people in the All right, guys, give me some feedback in the chat. What's the sound like? Give me some feedback. Can everyone hear this? I've got it up on, on max volume, so turn up your devices. Tell me if everyone can hear this. People are saying the sound is fine. One person says it's too low. Everyone else is saying the sound is fine. All right, guys, we're going to keep going. The region of Galatia. There were a group of people who had come to the Galatians. We refer to them usually as Judaizers. Have you ever heard the term Judaizers? A Judaizer is a claimant to be a follower of Christ, but is very legalistic has a Jewish background and believes that if you want to get right with God, you have to, yes, come through Christ, but go through the vehicle of Judaism in order to be fully right with God. You have. Okay, so this is um, just right off the bat, guys. We just want to, there's some conflicting definitions of Judaism. This is some of the research for this broadcast. I. I thought it was pretty clear that Judaizing was simply people from Judaism that um, did, that rejected Christ, that wanted to bring Christians away from believing in Christ as their high priest and bring them into back to Judaism, which was the law or the yeah the law and the the practice of the Pharisees, because that's where the, they had the traditions and the customs that Yeshua reprimanded them about, right? Because they were using those traditions and superseding the actual commandments of God as, as Yeshua tells them in Mark seven, uh, eight through 10. And so I found out that there's multiple definitions according to which, uh, which resource basically that you might use to determine the definition of a Judaizer. So we're going to just keep that in mind because what he did describe, he was like, Oh, someone that's become, well, let's back it up a little bit. Because at first it sounds like he's describing Yeshua, right? Someone that you're in faith, you want to come through the traditions. But wait, he says, oh, but they add on. And then he starts twisting the definition of Judaizing to be someone that believes in Christ, but also thinks you have to do the law of God, which was pretty funny because that literally is the command of Jesus our Messiah. But this is what's taught in seminaries, is they think that you just believe in Christ, stop, turn the video off, and you're done. But if you try to add anything to that, suddenly you're Judaizing. And they just ignore the fact that Jesus, not only was he a Jew, but the word Jew simply, it, you know, it's a cultural term for a people group um, at that time that, that lived in Judea that was an amalgamation of Israelites from the different scattered places that had come back over time. But ultimately, it was, it was a common reference to the customs of Judaism that the Pharisees pushed. This is why there was so much friction between the Messiah and the Pharisees, because he showed up saying, you're not doing the law of God, and you should be. And the Pharisees killed Jesus for that. They also persecuted his disciples, and they persecuted Paul. So we're going to read here in Galatians 2 in a minute how Paul used to be in Judaism, but he left that 
to follow Christ because he realized it was man-made traditions and things that were not actually, they were actually getting in the way of him actually doing the laws of, of the commandments of God. So what we're going to see and what I hope to point out with this preacher and this, the reason why I chose this particular clip is because um, a lot of people know who this gentleman is and he's very well spoken. And in this particular one, he kind of, in this particular sermon, I'm, I'm showing you clips from it. He kind of hits like all the stereotypical bumper sticker phrases in trying to say that the, the law is done away with, but you're still supposed to do good works, but he never defines any of it. All the words there, they lack definition and they're all just jumbled together, a whole bunch of double speak. So I'm just trying to prep you and let's, we're going to break down Judaism and Judaizing here in just a second. God, you have to, yes, come through Christ, but go through the vehicle of Judaism in order to be fully right with God. You have to proselytize into the Jewish religion, keep the Jewish feasts, festivals, regulations, rituals. So you guys see what he did right there? He just said, yes, you got to. So his definition of Judaism, excuse me, Judaizing, goes along the lines of what he thinks is a believer in Christ who tries to get people to do the, the laws of God. And he specifically enunciates a few of them, meaning also the feasts and the rituals. But see, that's this is where the misconception comes in. This is what I just tried to explain. That it's it's funny to me how so many of these pastors, they they forget that Yeshua literally reprimanded the Pharisees for not doing the law of God, because they had their own uh, traditions. So this is the part where that's being conflated, and I hope that we can um, we can make a distinction there throughout this video so that you don't get confused as well. Because like I said. The rhetoric that he's speaking, or he hits all the bumper sticker phrases in this particular sermon, it's they seem very impactful, right? They seem very accurate. It sounds good, right? And the way he puts them together with a certain inflection and tone, and it sounds good. He would probably be given a doctorate from his seminary because they think, man, this guy just everything we taught him, he's he's repeating perfectly. He's amazing. But this is where we need to dissect what exactly is he saying and the words he's using. Is that the actual definition of those words? As well as receive Jesus Christ as Messiah. Okay. All right, guys. So we're going to stop real quick and let's look at a couple things. We're going to look, let's look at the actual definition of Judaizing. All right. So that here we see, this is a Wikipedia, all right? And don't worry, I'm going to show you the source here at the bottom. It's, it's actually from an Anglican theologian, a lady named Evan Livingston, and she was the one that contributed to the Oxford Dictionary of the Christian Church to bring up this particular definition of Judaizing. And they claim it's a faction of Jewish Christians, both of Jewish and non-Jewish origins, who regarded the Levitical laws of the Old Testament as still binding on all Christians. So I'll put this up for anyone in the live chat. Anyone in the live chat here. We're going to take a minute. Anyone in the live chat. What's wrong with this definition? Let's read it one more time. A faction of the Jewish Christians, both of Jewish and non-Jewish origins, who regarded the Levitical laws of the Old Testament as still binding on all Christians. Eric, I hear you. We're going to go over some other definitions. Just be patient, brother. What is wrong with this definition? Which is the one that he just gave, by the way. This, this famous pastor that we just listened to. 
He just gave this exact definition. That's why I'm using this one first. See if anyone can spot what's wrong with this particular definition as far as everything that we talk about and we've learned on this channel here. What's wrong with this? A faction of Jewish Christians, both of Jewish and non-Jewish origins, who regarded the Levitical laws of the Old Testament as still binding on all Christians. Okay, so some people are saying the word binding is the problem because they're referring to them as not a burden. All right, some Loray saying they're conflating Judaism with Christianity. There it is, Beetlejuice. We have a winner, winner, chicken dinner. Levitical laws, Levitical laws, guys. This is not Levitical law. And the instructions of God's commandments are all the way back to Genesis. Genesis, you know, Genesis 4, we see the, the Cain and Abel bringing their offerings to God. That's a part of God's instructions for living, to honor the ruler over you through, through a priesthood. Adam will be the high priest, and God will be the one they're bringing their sacrifice to. So it's not a Levitical concept. It's not just in the book of Leviticus, and it's not just pertaining to the group of the tribe of the, from where the priesthood was chosen um, out of. It's, it's the entirety of mankind, Ecclesiastes 12, 13. It is the whole duty of man to keep the commandments of God. And we see those commandments uh, layered through all the scriptures, not just Leviticus. We see them in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. We see them in Joshua. We see them all over the Proverbs and Psalms. We see him expounded upon and explained with greater fervor and depth in Ezekiel and Jeremiah, Isaiah. So this is this right here shows you their lens is one of of either ignorance or bias. And since we're going to be talking Martin Luther, I actually lean towards bias because that's where all this stemmed from was a strong bias that adopted an early Christendom because early Christians were being persecuted by Jewish synagogues. So there was this strange faction, this strange friction, I should say, that started where you can see it all the way back to the second century with Justin Martyr's writings, which is why some people call Justin Martyr anti-Semitic, because they're like, man, he's speaking harshly about the Jewish leaders and the Jewish people. Well, they were being persecuted by the Jewish leaders, just like Jesus was killed by the Jewish leaders of the day, people that were following Judaism, which is a separate religion. It's a separate practice. And I know there's some people that think that that's because they themselves are a little confused. They themselves have been always been told the Old Testament is Judaism. That's a lie. That's what the Pharisees wanted people to believe. That's the lie that's still propagated today. But that is not accurate. This is why Yeshua reprimanded them for their practices and said they were not doing the Old Testament instructions. They were not doing the ways of the laws and the prophets as expounded to to mankind from God. This is why Yeshua perfectly exemplified that as he walked around. So let's let's go real quick down to another Merriam-Webster. It's, it's to adopt the customs, beliefs, or character of a Jew. So while it seems like this is less um, theologically inaccurate, it's more socially prejudiced. <laughs> This one also does the same thing where it puts these the Jews and guys, any to all my admins uh, and moderators in the in the live chat, um, we, we will not be tolerating any any people hating on Jewish people tonight. So give them a warning. But if they can't control themselves, go ahead and, and boot them. Um, so guys, this is <laughs> think about this. So now it's not even mixing in the theology mix, mis, 
representing the theology of the Old Testament by just calling it Levitical law. But Merriam-Webster has a, a more culturally prejudiced view and definition of Judaizer, which is to adopt the customs, beliefs, or characters of a Jew. Well, my Messiah was of the tribe of Judah, literally where the word Judim came from. Literally, he's the, the high priest of the covenant of God. My Messiah had the, the customs, beliefs, and characters of a Jew. But are, wait a minute, is it talking about the customs, beliefs, and characters of someone following the commandments or someone following the customs, beliefs, and character of a person in Judaism, which was a separate thing? This is what Peter got reprimanded for in Acts chapter 10. He was following the customs of Judaism that was not the law of God. And the angel had to correct him with the vision. So Merriam-Webster has a different definition that confuses people as well. Baker's Evangelical Dictionary of Biblical Theology. So this also has a definition that says, those who adopted Jewish religious practices or sought sought to influence others to do so. Okay. So again, very kind of vague, but still just lumps it in with this idea of Jewishness. So... What, okay, so what is it talking about? Again, if you already have a fundamental idea and to think that anything called Jewish is the law of God, then you're already mistaken. But this is the big cultural misunderstanding that so many Christians have, is they think that everything in the Old Testament is Jewish and everything in the New Testament is Christian. That is an absolute blanket mischaracterization that lacks context. So we don't want to do that. We want to actually dig in. And let's look real quick at some scriptures to help us dig in. In Acts chapter 20, 20 through 27, we're going to be talking about Paul. And specifically, well, I tell you what, before we jump into this, let's listen a little bit further to our friend Skip. And in certain places, he's angry. Why? Because... They're trying to mix the gospel with other things. It's not just Jesus alone. It's not just faith in Jesus alone. It's faith in Jesus plus something else. And anytime you add a plus to Jesus and say that Jesus is not enough, anytime you try to mix just the pure faith in Jesus alone an act of God's grace through your trusting in Jesus alone. When you add something to the gospel, it's not the gospel any longer. It's not good news. Now the good news has become bad news. Now you're saying, well, you're off to a good start in accepting Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, but now you need more than Jesus. Okay. Jesus. uh... It was very hard for me to put together tonight's uh, resources here because these, this. Oh, okay. So, do you guys hear the conflation? So he's talking about now. Anytime he's just saying, if you don't have Jesus alone, and you try to add anything to it, now you're getting now you're going into a different gospel. That's that's the theological and emotional intimidation they push onto young believers who don't know the difference and they don't know their Bible well enough to know how much this guy is taking words and ideas way out of context from the scriptures. Guys, I used to listen to this guy 10, 12 years ago. I heard him on the radio a lot. I thought, oh, wow, he's so profound. He knows his stuff. But the more I started actually reading the Bible for myself, I realized, oh my goodness, this guy's 
not using the definition of words properly. He just mis- misused the definition of grace, and he misused the definition of the word gospel, right? So it's it can be frustrating. It can be tough, all right? So this is where I've always wondered when people say, you just need Jesus alone. I'm like, all right, what's after that? You just need Jesus alone. Just believe in Jesus alone. I'm like, I already, I already believe in Jesus. Yes, John 3, 16, he is enough. And if God's law is done away with, I hope you're not married because then your spouse can't trust if you're going to be faithful to them or not. Because there's no command for you not to pin adultery. Watch out. Check, check your words. Check check what you're actually saying. Think about what you're actually promoting. We're going to go over these concepts tonight. But remember, everyone that is listening to this who believes in Yeshua for their salvation, they think he's enough. They know he's enough. But there's a discipleship process that's involved. Now, we're going to go over some of his references to that. And guys, this is going to be a multi-part series, so we're not going to cover the entire video tonight, and we're not going to be able to cover all of Galatians tonight because this is going to be a multi-part series. But this this whole concept here is him kind of give him a big overview of Galatians through his sermon, and then we're going to go through our study guide um, of Galatians with all the context and everything layered out as well. So to try to make it understandable, but but first we should actually define some of the words that he used that were um, not being used with good definitions. So let's look real quick at some of this. So in Acts chapter 20, 20 through 27, we hear Paul in verse 24, he says, But I consider my life of no value to me. If only I may finish my course and complete the ministry I've received from the Lord Jesus, the ministry of testifying to the gospel of the grace of God. Amen and hallelujah. We all agree with that. It's amazing, right? Wonderfully well-written words. Paul is, is eloquently speaking to the people before him. But this is just one little passage amongst an entire book. So we can't take things out of context. But if I were to just look at this and say, what is this gospel of the grace of God that he's that he's referring to, which seminaries and like the pastor we're listening to tonight has picked up this phrase and made it into its own definition apart from the context that Paul uses it. So what is this? If I were to say, what does the word gospel mean? It means good news. Very simple definition. Very simple. Consistent on all resources. It means good news. Well, what's the definition of the word grace? Now we go into Strong's Concordance to figure out in this passage, in Acts 20, verse 24, the specific Hebrew word, 5485 of charis, was used as an example of grace and kindness. This is the word, and its definition is grace as a gift or blessing brought to man by Jesus, or favor, gratitude and thanks, or favor and kindness. Now, many, so, so many people and so many pastors, they have taken this word grace and they've twisted it to mean unmerited favor. They don't use the the actual lexiconical definitions anymore in their, in their speech and in, in the, what they're trying to say in their message, they'll say it's unmerited favor. And then other times they just assume the definition of unmerited favor as they preach about it and talk about the gospel of grace. This is some of the same wording that we will be hearing in furthering clips of uh, the pastor that we're listening to, where he talks about, you don't need the plus. You just need Jesus. His grace is sufficient for you. It's enough. You don't need the plus. And you're like, well, what is his, what does the word grace mean? If that's sufficient for me, what does it mean? And how, what is this process that by which it's enough? So if I look at this word grace, I see that it's, a gift or a blessing brought to mankind by Jesus. Wonderful. Hallelujah. What is that gift? What is that blessing? 
Did Paul preach on that gift or that blessing? Or did he always just use this vague term grace to define it? Well, yes, he emphatically preached on what it is. It's the resurrection to come and being brought into the interest of the kingdom of God. It's the gift of eternal life to live in God's house. So with that in mind, that's the favor, that's the kindness given to us. But how does Yeshua actually accomplish this for us? That's another huge, important part. And here, let's look at the scriptures as it tells us in Hebrews chapter 5, 7 through 10. During the days of Jesus' earthly life, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. What does this mean, guys? Is it just to all who say, I, I believe Jesus is real and died for my sins? Hallelujah, amen. I'm going to go home now. Or maybe we should go to the, the rec room for the potluck. Is that it? Is that what that verse says? Does it say you're made perfect and, you're, and he became your source of eternal salvation? End of story? No, it says to all who obey him. Well, how do you obey Yeshua? And why would you obey Yeshua? Well, verse 10 tells you why. It's because he was designated as high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Your Messiah is your high priest who is a position of rulership and authority in Israel. This is, the, this is the functionary job that your Messiah does over you right now. This is why you would give him res respect and praise. Thank you, moderators, for handling the chat and all the spam that people are trying to spam in there. All right, guys. So right, we, this is why you would respect and reverence Yeshua as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Lord meaning master, ruler. He's master of masters, and he's king of kings. This was the prophecy for your Messiah from all the way back in uh, Isaiah 53 and Zechariah 6, that he would become a priest and a king, a ruler and a priest that ministers to the Father on your behalf. And just as in all of the instructions of God to, in Israel, you need to obey your high priest. He's the one who mediates to God on your behalf. He's supposed to teach you right behavior, which is righteousness. We're going to go over what Paul calls the message of righteousness in a minute. And this is what you would respect your high priest, and you would obey what he asks of you, because he's supposed to lead you into good things, into good behaviors, good works. This was the point of a priest. This is why we're called to obey him in the New Testament. This is why Yeshua said to the Pharisees in John 8, if you do not believe that I am he, because they asked him, are you the Messiah? And he says, yes. And then they 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 rebuked and there's further in conversation. But then he says, if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Why? Because that means those Pharisees would be rejecting the high priest that the father had given them to be their ruler and to mediate for their sins. So if you were in ancient Israel, and you went to the temple of God and the high priest came out to receive your confession of sin, to go and take it before the father. And you, and that high priest walked up to you and you said, uh, I don't know. Uh, I don't know who you are. Is there someone else here I can talk to? And he's like, no, I'm, I'm the high priest appointed over God's house so that I may, you know, I, I may atone for your sins. What, you know, what's going on? And you're like, no, nah, I don't like you. Um, let's go. Where's, where's someone else? Where's someone else? That's not the way that God works. God says, 
I've chosen someone to do this job and you need to respect him because he's appointed for this job and he's qualified. Yeshua qualified himself for this job by being obedient unto death, by being sinless in all regards of his life. So this is why it's so important that we would have to understand that our high priest, our Messiah, has an actual job for us and we must obey and listen to him. We actually go over the purpose of our Messiah being sent for us in a, in a uh, broadcast on our secondary channel, Kingdom Cast. And the title of that show was, was The Cross Substitutionary Atonement. You guys can go check that out. I actually put the video link to this video at the very bottom of our video description today. And there's also a video that we did on our main channel here, Kingdom in Context. The link is also at the bottom of our video description. It's Yeshua, our eternal high priest. And we go over these concepts about why Yeshua came, what he does for you according to God's law, and how he qualifies as a high priest and still ministers on behalf of your sins today. And that qualifies him to resurrect you in the future. So we go back to what Paul was trying to preach about this idea of the gospel of the grace of God. As we see him expounding the people that this is what he testified about, the good news of the favoring kindness of God that's been received from the Lord Jesus. Do you guys see those working definitions now? You guys see how that works? The good news of the favor and kindness of God that you got because of what Jesus did for you. Since he selflessly went to the cross on your behalf so he could become a high priest and minister atonement for your sin, that is that kindness given to you by Yeshua. But let's read the rest of the passage. Verse 20 says, I did not shrink back from declaring anything that was helpful to you as I taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to Jews and Greeks alike about repentance to God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, guys, what it, what is repentance? Testifying to Jews and Greeks alike? Though he makes no distinction, why does Miriam Webster? Why does this pastor we're listening to? He makes no distinction of who he's speaking this message to to Jews and Greeks alike, about repentance to God. What is repentance to God, guys? Anyone have a working definition that they know from Scripture? Put it in the live chat. What is repentance to God? Anyone? All right, Justin Time says to turn away from sin. Awesome. To turn away from sin. What is sin? Anyone have an idea what sin is? Glendico says it's a change to your mind. Many people saying turning away. Did you guys know that it's a change of your mind and your behavior going back to God's instructions, his law? That's what Yeshua preached. That's what Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos, Nahum, Tobit, Jonah, all of them preached repentance to stop doing the wicked ways of sinful fleshly behavior and start doing the ways of the Most High God, which was called good. It was called right behavior. So we have Paul here telling us that he testified to Jews and Greeks alike in the same manner about how to repent and turn from their pagan idolatrous ways and follow the true and living God under the authority of Jesus Christ, their high priest. This is what repentance means. So growing up, guys, I, I you know, I grew up, my father was a pastor for many years, um, but he stopped pastoring when I got to the age of like 10 or 11. And, you know, I, had, I still had a young mind at that point. 
it wasn't until I was in high school till I really gave my heart to Christ and really, you know, had a, like a, uh, I didn't, I didn't technically have an altar call experience at, at the moment I gave my heart to Christ. Uh, it was in the back of a minivan on, on I-95 in New Jersey. But later, as I went to church later after that, I would have those type of altar call experiences because you'd hear the pastor say, you know, you want to come forward and give your, confess your sins to Jesus, give your heart to God, confess him with your mouth, believe with your heart and you will be saved, right? He would go through the Romans 10, 9 and 10 verses. And you do that and then you're like, okay, what now? And everybody tells you that you would have immediately when you start going into your Sunday schools, or your men's groups or whatever, to start going into learning more about the Bible and speaking to the, the youth pastors or the young adults pastors, they're always going to tell you, okay, well, now we got to work on, you know, stop doing those sinful behaviors. But it's here's where the double speak comes in, because they seem to forget that those sinful behaviors were literally listed in the Old Testament as bad behavior. And that. The Most High spoke through his prophets to tell people what good behavior was and how to follow that. And it it wasn't supposed to be difficult. It was supposed to be super easy. This is why Yeshua called it a light yoke. The only thing that was difficult, that was impossible to follow, was all the traditions that had compiled over hundreds of years with Judaism that were being pushed on people by the Pharisees. This is why... Yeshua was trying to tell them, you guys are lift, putting a burden on people in Matthew 23, 4, that they can't bear. But Yeshua in Matthew 11 tells them that his yoke was light. His was easy, right? Because he's just referring them back to the commandments of God, the commandments of Yahweh, the Most High, the Father of Yeshua. He's pointing back and saying, look, these, these commandments, these are not, these are, you can do these. And you'll be blessed if you do them and they're good behavior and it's going to create good results. And when you do them, you're practicing righteousness. You're practicing. You don't, you're not made complete in it until the resurrection, but you get to practice in this life. And that's all he asks of you. Uh, created by the most high. I appreciate the super sticker. Thank you so much. So we know what the definition of repentance means. And now we know what the definition of gospel means and the word grace. So let's read verse 25 here. And it says, now I know that none of you among whom I have preached the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole will of God. What did Paul say right here? He just says, I, now I know that none of you among whom I have preached the kingdom will see my face again. He's preaching the kingdom of God everywhere he went. With this message of repenting from your sins, stop doing pagan, idolatrous, worldly behavior of the nations, and start doing the behavior of the Most High God from heaven above. Do his behavior. The behavior that we all saw Jesus do, that we, he was perfect in it. Do that behavior. And that is because Jesus is your high priest now. The good news is now you're going to get, he's He's mediating on your behalf. That's the good news. First Timothy 2.5. And as a result of that, He's going to resurrect you. He's going to bring you into the kingdom of God. This is a favor and a kindness that we don't deserve. All we have to do is be a disciple of our Messiah. So this is why he's talking about getting to the kingdom everywhere he goes. We're going to see it here in Romans 14, 17 through 18. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness. That means right behavior. That's the behavior defined as righteousness in the Old Testament. Peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. 
1 Corinthians 14, 24, then the end will come when he, Yeshua, hands over the kingdom to God the Father. More preaching and explanation about the kingdom of God. 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 3, now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is dismantled, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. For in this tent we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. That's the kingdom of God. Galatians 5, the same book that we're reviewing tonight, 19 through 21. Paul lists off in 19, 20, and 21 a whole bunch of bad behaviors. These are behaviors that would be against the laws of God. He says, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Guys, this should immediately tell you that everyone who practices the opposite behavior, which he goes on to explain in 22 and 23, the fruits of the Spirit, you will inherit the kingdom of God. That means he's defining a behavior inside the kingdom of God. That behavior is what we practice now as a part of our discipleship to our Messiah. It's very simple. For a preacher to demonize the good behavior that we're supposed to practice, to say that that is part of a law that was antiquated, that was a burden, that shackles, that's binding, that's plus you're adding to the gospel if you suddenly start defining discipleship. That is an unqualified teacher. It's a sad and hard truth. That's why we put Hebrews 5, 11 through 13 on the screen before we started tonight. That is someone that doesn't even understand that the milk, they shouldn't be trying to teach the meat. That is someone who doesn't understand the message of righteousness, the message of right behavior, which means you adopt your behavior to be like Yeshua of Nazareth. Any preacher that tries to claim to you that believing in Jesus by itself is all you got to do, and you're just supposed to magically start changing your behavior without having to read the scriptures that defines it for you, that is an unqualified teacher. That is someone that it's that has been propagated by a seminary upon hundreds of years of tradition, just like the, the Pharisees had traditions 2,000 years ago that conflicted with the actual scriptures. Modern-day seminaries have traditions over hundreds of years that conflict with the actual scriptures, and their words create massive doublespeak. This means ideas that conflict each other from one sentence to the next. And we're going to listen to some more of it, so hold on to your seats. But before we do, 1 Corinthians 6.10, he's talking about getting in the, the kingdom of God and who won't get in. Ephesians 5.5, 5, uh more bad behavior that you cannot do. That means you need to be doing right behavior, which is discipleship. That right behavior is defined for you in the law of God. Someone that's moral, defined in Leviticus. That's someone that's doing loving behavior to God and to his neighbor. Someone that's impure, that means someone that's unclean. That's defined for you in Leviticus 12 through 15. So a greedy person, that's defined in Exodus 22 and I think Deuteronomy 23 and a whole bunch of other places. Someone that would be prone to theft someone that would use unjust weights and measures. What about an idolater? That's in Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 8. What about anyone? These are all behaviors that the Bible tells you, hey, do good behavior, but don't do bad behavior. It's consistent from start to finish, from Genesis to Revelation. The good behavior is what will be done in the kingdom of God. So this is Paul explaining to all, in all the places he went and evangelized. He's explaining to them the proper behavior to practice for when the kingdom comes. This is our call as believers. Philippians 3, 20, our citizenship is in heaven. 
That means you're going to be in a kingdom. You need to do the behavior of that kingdom. He's preaching about the kingdom everywhere he goes. Colossians chapter 3, 23 through 24, because you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as your reward. Guys, you're not you're rewarded for good behavior. This is so th there is a plus. Don't I'm sorry, Pastor. I don't care how well respected you are. The wording is absolutely contrary to the scriptures. Yeshua himself told us to seek righteousness and all these other things would be added unto us. That means we have to seek right behavior. That means you have to learn it and practice it. You don't just get to confess him with your lips, but keep your heart far from him. In order to confess Yeshua with your lips and believe in your heart, that means you change your behavior to adopt it to Yeshua's behavior. Well, guess what? Yeshua's behavior was only the law and the prophets. That's where he got his behavior from. That was the definition of his behavior. First Timothy 6, he goes on to talk about the same thing Yeshua talked about in Luke 6, that we're storing up treasures for ourselves, a firm foundation for the future because the kingdom is coming. The resurrection is coming. Yeshua is going to make it all possible. He's the one that provides it for you. You cannot resurrect yourself. You cannot bring the kingdom down to earth. That is a decision by the Father when he sends his son at the second coming. You cannot resurrect yourself. You don't have the power. This is why we need our wonderful Savior and High Priest. We need our, our blessed brother Yeshua, as Romans 8.29 says, who's the firstborn of many brethren. We need him as our authority to represent us on behalf of God because we're frail, we're broken, we sin currently, but we try to get better. He mediates when we mess up. And then at the promised resurrection, he's going to give us a new body with an incorruptible heart. We will never sin again. But in the meantime, we absolutely need to know the definition of what is good and bad behavior. Acts chapter 28, 3, he goes on to say that, So they set a day to meet with Paul, and many people came to the place he was staying. He expounded to them from morning to evening. He's testifying about the kingdom of God. And, and there's an and here, and persuading them about Jesus from the law of Moses and the prophets. Just like I'm doing with you guys tonight. I'm explaining to you that Yeshua's behavior was from the law and the prophets. It's called right behavior. And that behavior will be required of everyone who lives in the kingdom of God in the future. This is the same message Paul, the apostles, Yeshua, and all the prophets spoke. It's the same consistent message in the scriptures. So for someone to tell you, for someone to come along and tell you that if you believe in your heart that Jesus is the Messiah, but then you actually want to figure out the behavior Jesus did, that you're somehow Judaizing, that you're somehow adding to the gospel and changing the gospel, that person has disqualified themselves as an actual coherent and proficient teacher of the scriptures. And that's just a sad reality. And there's a lot of them out there. Let's uh, listen a little bit further to our friend, the pastor. Everyone pray for him. Paul would go into a territory that had not heard the gospel. He would go into the synagogue to the Jew first and then also to the Greek. He would sow the seeds of the pure gospel, many of whom, the people that he was speaking to, many of whom had never heard the name Jesus before. So he would give them the background of the law in the Old Testament, then he would tell how Jesus fulfilled it. So he would go into virgin territory and preach the gospel. Do you guys hear that? It's a short, it's a short little clip right there, but let's hear it one more time. Law in the Old Testament, then he would tell how Jesus fulfilled it. 
Did you guys hear that? The people that he was speaking to, many of whom had never heard the name Jesus before. They never heard the name Jesus. Okay, fair enough. So he's going to introduce them to this guy that was said to be the Messiah. Not just the Messiah, but the high priest of the covenant Israel. This was the, the Messiah's purpose was to become your high priest. So Paul's introducing the Messiah, who he is, to a, a nations that didn't know who he was. And listen, even the pastor explains properly that, yes, Paul had to ex explain to these people from the Law and the Prophets, just like Paul explains in Acts chapter 20, verse 24, excuse me, Acts 28, verse 24, that that was what he was doing. He was expounding to them about the kingdom of God, which has a high priest, and Jesus from the Law and the Prophets. So this is what the pastor also, so he he's, he's right to say it. The law in the Old Testament, then he would tell how Jesus fulfilled it. So he would go into virgin territory and preach the gospel. So he would tell them about Jesus and give them the background, talk about how the law and the prophets and how Jesus fulfilled it. Now here's where we get into the fun, the fun stuff that you guys have seen me do debates with pastors. And we, we talk about this word fulfilled and they, they seem to think that it's, it, it means, even though they admit to you, the definition of the word does not say abolished or done away with, but in application of how they use it, they use it as if Jesus abolished the definitions of good behavior from the Old Testament because they call it a burden. They've, they've been taught to call the laws of God a burden. Although the psalmist says, I set my heart to your commands because you enlarge my heart. The psalmists in Psalm 119 talks about how they're eternal. They enlarge his heart. They're right thinking. They're good precepts that give him life. He runs in the freedom of the commands of God. If anyone hasn't read Psalm 119, I highly encourage you to. It's very helpful. So there's a double speak that's happening, right? And that it's subtle right here, where he actually says, Paul goes into a virgin territory. People have never heard of Yeshua. He introduces the Messiah to them and then explains from the law and the prophets who the Messiah is and how he fulfilled the law. So this is this pastor's interpretation built upon what he's been taught throughout the years to understand this topic, that the law has been done away with. Tonight, not tonight, but in, in other clips that we're going to look at in following weeks, he's actually going to make that statement and explain how the law's you know not applicable to you anymore. That's what he believes. That's what he's teaching. But again, you know, like I like I jested with the person in the live chat earlier, if that's true, is this guy literally saying that the, the laws of the Old Testament don't need to be abided by anymore? Is this is this guy literally trying to say that we can murder people now? Can see the double speak. What is the greatest commandment that Yeshua said to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind? That's in Deuteronomy 5. That's in Exodus chapter 20. Are you trying to tell me that that's done away with? So now I can go worship other gods? Is that what this pastor is telling me? At the same time, he tells me if I don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and if I don't believe in God and his son, then I'm not saved. And then the next breath, he says, the law of God's done away with what that law of God included that I must worship them alone. There's it's called double speak, guys. This is this is when you've been you've been trained poorly and your words conflict each other. So this is why he doesn't even realize he's double speaking. He's assuming he's throwing eisegesis into the text about what he th he thinks Paul was teaching the Galatians. Let's listen to another clip real quick. Actually, I tell you what. No, let's go into 
um, let's go into the study guide real quick and we'll look at the book of Galatians and read the first chapter because he's about to start getting into the, the first couple of chapters of it. So we see this is our contextual study guide where we actually put the themes of scripture and color coding next to the text. And then I have a context explained paragraph and then I have supporting scriptures to help us. And I'm going to make this bigger for everyone to see. So if we read here in Galatians chapter one, it says, Paul, an apostle sent not from men nor by man, but by Jesus Christ and God, the father who raised him from the dead. Isn't that amazing? So thank you, Kendig. Kendig. I appreciate the super sticker. So what is the point here when it says Paul, an apostle, that's someone sent by somebody. That's what the definition of apostle means. He said he was sent directly by Jesus. Okay, so this is, we get that story in Acts chapter 9. And he says, Jesus was right. Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ was, and God, that's a ruler, excuse me, by, by Jesus, the Christ and God, the father. So this is the separation here. Um, Jesus, the Messiah and God, the father who raised him from the dead. Okay. Awesome. That's consistent with everything. But why? Paul has revealed his commission to the believers in Galatia was from the one was from the one he was under in authority, which is Yeshua, the eternal high priest of Israel. So the whole point of being sent by someone, you have to to be an apostle of someone means that they have authority to send you. The, there is, besides God the Father, there is no greater authority in all of Israel of all believers than Yeshua, our Messiah. So this is this is why he's even using this language. It's because he's sent by someone as an apostle. He's not sent by James or Peter or John, one of the disciples. There's no apostolic secession here. This is literally just apostleship saying, look, I was sent by Jesus I was as an apostle. And he, he gives that authority to Jesus because he should. That is being obedient to the law of God to respect the high priest of the covenant. So this is why the position of high priest was given to the Messiah by his father, Yahweh, after his resurrection. Which is Paul, what's he talking about here? He's raising. This is the background context to Paul's opening statement of Galatians to understand being sent as an apostle under the authority of Yeshua is to understand the high priest position of the Messiah Yeshua. So we have in Hebrews 3, 1 through 2, Therefore, holy brothers, who share in the heavenly calling, that's that citizenship in heaven, right? Set your focus on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. Well, now the writer of Hebrews is saying that Jesus is an apostle himself. Sent by who? Sent by God the Father to do this job, to be our high priest. That was the point of sending him. He was faithful to the one who appointed him. This is why he's called an apostle. Even Yeshua was called an apostle to his father because he was sent and appointed by his father. And he was faithful. That means he was obedient, just as Moses was faithful in all of God's house. So it goes on in verse 2 and 3, And all the brothers with me to the churches of Galatia, grace and peace to you from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age and according to the will of God our and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Jesus gave himself to rescue us from our sins from the present evil age. Isn't that amazing? Because that's the point of him making atonement for you to promise you eternal life at the resurrection. That's how you get rescued from your sins. Because what does 1 John 3 tell us? He who says he's without sin is a liar. Or, I'm sorry, First John, uh, verse, First John one, verse eight. He who says he's without sin is a liar. 
This is why verse 9 goes on to say, but if you confess your sins, he, Yeshua, is faithful and just to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. That's the job of a priest. That's what a priest does for you. This is our Messiah. This is his job for us. But he gave himself for our sins. He gave himself to get to the position to make atonement for our sins and make resurrection for us. So this is why we call he's the son of the father. And the son of God was destined and prophesied to come and die so that he could be rescued and ordained as the high priest of Israel in the order of Melchizedek. To achieve that position of authority and mediation, the Messiah needed to endure the false accusations and betrayal unto being murdered by his own people. We also see this in Matthew 26, 39. Yeshua prays in the Garden of Gethsemane before the night before the cross. Going a little further, he fell face down and prayed, My Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. That's how he is faithful in everything that he was appointed. He knew going to the cross was going to be tough. But he said, you know what? It's what I have to do at this moment because he knew the result was he was going to be resurrected and he was going to be appointed as high priest over Israel to make eternal resurrection possible for everyone who believes. Isn't that beautiful? He says, it goes on in verse six, Paul says, I'm amazed how quickly you're deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ. What did we hear about that word grace? The favor and the kindness extended from Yeshua and his priesthood position? The grace of Christ. It's not some special term that somehow makes the law go away. It literally means the only reason you get favor and kindness is because Yeshua is doing the law on your behalf in his priesthood position. So this is the conflation. This is the twisting of the words where modern seminaries will teach that the grace of Christ makes the law of God go away. That is the most, <laughs> what is the word? I can't think of the word right now. Um, oxymoronic. It's oxymoronic. And this is what's preached in so many churches. They say that by the grace of Christ, you're saved. Therefore, you don't have to do anything in the law of God. And I'm like, really? Are you saying that I don't have to worship the Lord God alone and with all my heart, soul, strength, and mind? Are you saying that I don't have to refrain from worshiping idols? You're saying that I can go and abuse my neighbor's animal and steal his possessions? What are you saying? How does the favor of Christ through his priesthood granting atonement for my sin allow me to go sin? That doesn't make any sense. Yet this is what is taught week after week in seminary trained pastors and churches all across the United States. It's a double speak. It's words that contradict each other that they speak with utmost confidence and conviction. They don't realize they're double speaking. So he goes, I'm amazed how quickly you deserted the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is not even a gospel. It's meaning it's not even good news. The people he's having to address in Galatians for, because they were being bewitched by the party of circumcision, the Pharisees. Remember why? And we're going to get into that and this week and following weeks. But why? Because remember the Pharisees rejected Christ. So then anything they, they persuaded these people to stop listening to what Paul had said, which Paul promoted Christ in the kingdom of God. And if they started listening to this party of circumcision, the Pharisees, and whatever they were saying, they rejected Christ. So of course that's not good news. Of course. Of course it wouldn't be. It says, which is not even a gospel. Well, evidently some are some people are troubling you and trying to distort the gospel of Christ, the good news of Christ. 
He says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be under a curse. A lot of preachers love to use the word, the Greek word here, anathema. They'll say, let him be a curse. Let him basically be uh, go to hell, basically is what they're saying. And they and they love to they love to twist this and say, see, if you're trying to do the law of God, then you're under a curse. Well, how does that work? Because Yeshua did the law of God. Moses, the prophets, Elijah, Isaiah, Nehemiah, Ezra, they did the law of God. John the Baptist's parents, Zacharias and Elizabeth, Luke chapter 1, verse 7, they were commended for their right behavior, doing all the commandments of God faithfully. Were they under a curse? No, of course not. As Paul says, as we've said to you before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be under a curse. Well, what is the one that they've received so far? The one that we just showed you consistently throughout all the letters that Paul wrote to all the different places he evangelized. It's the same over and over. Do right behavior, get into the kingdom of God. And the only way that you are even allowed resurrection is because Yeshua is making atonement for you. He's the one that makes atonement for you and resurrects you to eternal life, which puts that right behavior in your heart permanently in this new body and allows you to live in the kingdom of God with never getting kicked out. Like that's the message Paul is consistently preaching everywhere he goes. This is the good news that he is expounding upon in Acts 20 verse 24. The good news of the gospel, excuse me, the gospel of the grace of God. The good news of the favor extended to you from God through his son's priesthood position for atonement for your sin and then resurrection in the future. It's really simple. Really, really simple. So we'll go here in, in Galatians 1.10. Verse 10, he says, I am, now, am I now seeking the approval of men or of God? Am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I certify to you, brothers, that the gospel, that's the good news, I preached was not devised by man. That's right. It's a message since the beginning God has given to his prophets that if you do right behavior, he'll resurrect you and bring you into his kingdom. This is why Yeshua tells us in Matthew 4, we have to, and in Revelation 2, we have to be faithful until the end. Verse 12, he says, I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. Okay, very interesting. So then he he been was revealed by his the visions he claims he'd have about how all this comes together, about what it means to, to preach the kingdom of God and all the, all the details included that we've been explaining to you tonight. Verse 13, he goes on to tell them, for you have heard of my former way of life in Judaism, how I severely persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my father. Right here, guys, should absolutely show you when a pastor steps up there and says, you are Judaizing, if you try to accept Christ and then do the law of God, that you're somehow Judaizing, that, that, that should tell you right there that that pastor is very confused. He's got his terminology mixed up. Most likely he was taught that terminology mix up at the seminary he attended. You are not, this is Paul right here telling us with, with very explicit words. He left Judaism to follow Christ. His former way of life in Judaism. 
that way of life persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. So this is not a working definition for a pastor to tell us that we're Judaizers trying to get people back into Judaism if they and also believe in Christ. No, Judaism rejected Christ and told people they could only be saved if they got circumcised and learned all the Torah. They rejected the high priest that was given to them. This is why Paul later says, don't you know that if you, 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 know, you break the law, you've got to do all of it? That means under the context, if you've rejected Christ, who makes atonement for you when you mess up and break the law, if you have no one mediating on your behalf as your high priest anymore, then of course you better do all of it perfectly. Or, or that means you have to be perfect as Yeshua was perfect so that you don't need anyone to atone for you. Yeshua didn't need anyone to atone for him. He didn't need a priest to atone for his sins. He was without sin. So, of course, Paul would say, look, if you were going to reject Christ and just rely on the law alone, then you got to do all of it perfectly. But as a believer, instead, I'm going to rely on what God gave me, which is his son to mediate for when I mess up. That's a part of the law of God was to provide a priest for you to, when you messed up. It's just ultimately all it really boils down to is the pastors don't know the Old Testament very well. But, you know, we say that a lot on this channel. Um try to find new creative ways to express that same idea, but that's really what it boils down to. I mean, that's, they don't know the front of their book very well. They don't realize that their, their Messiah is actually doing a position of the law on their behalf to create salvation for them. So for the fact that they could say out of their mouth that Yeshua, now that they believe in Jesus, they're saved and they don't need to do the law. It's the utmost doublespeak because Jesus is doing the law to save them. Like it's just, it's just, <laughs> Oh, someone throw some cold water on them, wake them up. You know what I mean? And I just pray that I pray that they get woken up. Who knows? Maybe this pastor will see this. I, I put a tag in the video description for their church. Maybe they'll see this. I don't know. You know, but I pray that they get woken up to see how, how just they're absolutely conflating and misusing the definitions of words. This is why here at Kingdom in Context, we're always talking about context. One of the easiest and quickest ways to find context is to just look up the definition of a word. And this is what we have in our, our contextual study guide here. This is what we've been doing tonight. This is the bulk of what we've been doing tonight. Just find the definition of a word. It's that simple. It's that simple, guys. So never let someone tell you that because you want to do the behavior of Jesus Christ, which is the law of God, that you're somehow Judaizing and never let them use Galatians to promote that idea. Paul says he left Judaism. It's a separate religion. He left it. He even, he even said he was advancing in Judaism beyond all of the contemporaries. He left it to follow Christ because Christ was teaching the actual law and the prophets, not a bunch of traditions of the fathers. Christ is actually teaching the wisdom of God, the true commandments, not traditions of previous Pharisaic fathers. This is a huge, huge, important point, guys. Verse 15, he says, But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased, called me by his grace. What does that word mean? We went over it tonight, right? The favor extended to you. The favor and kindness for extended to you by God, whether through the Father or through the Son. Verse 16, to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not rush to consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to the apostles who came before me, but I went into Arabia and later returned to Damascus. So when we look here, 
And we see here that this, this, what does he mean when he talks in verse 12, that he received it by revelation from Jesus Christ? Well, this is part of the priesthood. So it's one of the benefits of the Messiah in his promised priestly position in the Father's tabernacle in heaven is unlimited access to the Spirit of Yahweh. This allows Yeshua to freely give the Spirit by which wisdom and understanding come to men he chooses. This is what Peter explains to us in Acts chapter 20, verse 32 and 33. This is also what we see happening in Acts chapter 9. This is, this is a moment of that happening. So also we see down here this idea that Paul's conversion of faith, that Yeshua of Nazareth was truly sent by Yahweh and his son, was accomplished through the power given to the Messiah's role as our high priest. The resurrected and glorified Messiah has access to the power of his Father's Spirit, unlike any high priest of Israel before him. This is important, important distinction, guys. This is why we needed Yeshua so badly, to be without sin, so that he could have this position that only someone without sin could attain. He was given a priesthood greater than even angels in heaven. He now has unfettered access to the Spirit of God, to give to man as he chooses, to help them. This is so allow them to the work of the Spirit to happen in them through gifts of the Spirit. And he did this with a gift of faith and a supernatural manifestation to Paul to get him to convert. It's also happening, and apparently, according to reports from missionaries, it's happening in, in Muslim nations for like 10 years now. It's been happening all over the place. So we're still in Galatians chapter 1. Verse 18, only after three years did I go up to Jerusalem to confer with Cephas, that's Peter, and I stay with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I'm writing to you is no lie. Later I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown, however, to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the accounts that the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. Because why this is consistent with him saying he left Judaism. The Pharisees of Judaism were killing the apostles and believers in Yeshua. They killed Stephen in Acts chapter 7 and 8. So the believers then realized, oh my goodness, this Paul, one of the Pharisees that, that was with Stephen and Stone and Stone Stephen, one of those Pharisees actually converted and believed, and he's preaching Christ. He's actually doing the law of God, and he's not doing the traditions of Judaism. So this is why we have this labeled as the eternal Torah. It says, after his conversion to believing in the Messiah, Paul turned from his Pharisaical traditions and began walking in the simplicity of the commandments of Yahweh. This also softened his heart toward the very believers he formerly hunted in persecution. When our conversion leads to good fruits, fellow believers will thank Yahweh for the apparent change they see. And this is, of course, even the sin, even the angels in heaven rejoice, as Yeshua tells us in Luke 15, 10. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. Why would Paul be referred to as a sinner when he was um, a part of his pharisaical group? Why is this is his sudden preaching of Yeshua considered a conversion? Because he was a part of a group of Pharisees who rejected Christ. This is the big difference. They rejected their high priest given to them by God. 
and they clung to the traditions of their fathers, which interrupted how they obeyed the commandments of God. So when he came to Christ, he put away Judaism and walked after the, the behavior of Yeshua of Nazareth. This is not adding to the message of the good news of Jesus Christ. This is just basic discipleship 101. And how so many modern-day preachers have this twisted is literally a sign of the times, in my opinion. Because it's it, they're not twisting difficult things, guys. They're twisting the milk. It's hard to do. But this is what they're taught. This is what's being propagated. Let's uh, let's take a quick moment and we'll listen to uh, some more from uh, the pastor. And we pull this up real quick. The Judaizers did not do that. They weren't trying to win unbelievers. To, he, they weren't trying to win people to Christ. They were trying to wean people from Paul. They were trying to get the people. So this is another misrepresentation of Judaism and Judaizing. Is he just try? He just it completely doesn't realize that Judaizers rejected Christ. Again, if he's going off of a modern definition of Judaizing, then he's going to, like we showed at the beginning of the broadcast tonight, then that's why they think that. That's why they teach that. That's why they're taught that at seminary. Is there, There's a modern definition from the 1700s. Actually, it goes back to the 1500s and some, some dictionaries, but most of the Orthodox or Oxford-based Christian dictionaries, um, they talk about how Judaizing was an actual Christian who tried to get people to follow the Levitical laws. So that's why he has an improper definition to start. That's why I showed you this at the beginning of the broadcast. So you can understand why we're hearing him say these things, but how that improper definition is now being used in application as he tries to explain this in his own paraphrasing way about Galatians. He's trying to say that, oh, the the, the party of circumcision, the Pharisees came in and they didn't, they were just trying to get people away from Paul, not, not away from Christ. That's That's not true at all. That's not true at all. They literally came in and preached um, maligning Yeshua. They persecuted believers in Christ. They tried to get, that's what Yeshua reprimands them for. Matthew 23 says, you travel land, sea, land and sea and you make them twice the son of Gehenna. That means the lake of fire. That means they're, they're bound for destruction because why they're not telling them to believe in the actual instructions from the law and the prophets. Pharisee Judaism was telling them to believe in something else, some other stuff they had made up. It was, you know, you have to read the Talmud. There's a whole bunch of nonsense in there. That's not scriptural. So this is why he even now is using an improper uh, definition of that idea. To, he, they weren't trying to win people to Christ. They were trying to wean people from Paul. They were trying to get the people of Galatia to turn on what Paul had taught them. And they would come in and instead of starting their own thing and winning unbelievers to Christ, they would take believers when Paul was absent, and say, now let me tell you all that Paul got wrong and how I can enlighten you a bit. And so they would wean people off of Paul the Apostle onto the law. <sighs> it's, this is so difficult for me to go through, man. This, this makes my skin crawl. <clears throat> Sorry, guys. Whew. All right. 
so no, no, they didn't wean people just off of Paul and onto the law. Paul taught the law emphatically everywhere he goes. Um, as I've been showing you guys tonight, as we've done multiple videos on, and um, in fact, we'll pull up, let's pull up the study guide and let's look at the people that Paul's talking about. If we go to Galatians chapter six, we'll see that he actually mentions that those people that he's warning the Galatians not to listen to, um, he says that they don't even follow the law. Okay, so here we go. Galatians chapter uh, six, 12 and 13. Those who want to make a good impression outwardly are trying to compel you to be circumcised. They only do this to avoid persecution for the cross of Christ. For the circumcised do not even keep the law themselves. Yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. So this is, guys, this is, this is a moment here. I mean, again, okay, so let's, let's go into, let's go into Romans real quick. So you can understand that Paul taught the law of God emphatically everywhere he went. In fact, he even tells us in Romans chapter six um, that um, he didn't even know what sin was until he knew the law. This is why we have to disciple ourselves. Um, let's see here. He talks about being slaves to righteousness. He says, what then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? We've talked about this before. Being under the law means you're you're disobedient to the law and have no atonement. But under grace is that you have the atonement of Yeshua now as your high priest. That favor and kindness extended to you because of what Christ is doing for you. He says, should we sin because we are not under the penalty of the law, but we're under the kindness of Christ's priesthood? Of course not. Certainly not, he says. Certainly not. Do not sin. Paul tells you right here, do not sin. Do not sin. He goes on to say, do you not know? That when you offer yourselves as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the ones you obey, whether you're slaves to sin leading to death or to obedience leading to what? To right behavior. I'm going to be obedient to the one as a, an obedient slave, as an obedient servant to Christ, because he had right behavior and my obedience will lead me to right behavior. Do you guys see that? This is. Paul, okay, so let's let's step a, step at one more here. Paul tells us real quick. What is what does he say? What shall we say? Is the law sin? Is is it? Would that be sinful? Would that be changing the gospel to talk about the law now? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have even mindful of sin if not for the law. Oh wait a minute, Mister Pastor, are you telling me that without Christ, that, that excuse me, are you telling me because he does say this later at the end of these clips, he's going to tell us that because of the work of grace, I now instinctively do good works. But Paul's telling us that this is from Paul, right? So that's that's what the pastors are going to misquote Galatians. But Paul's telling us right here that Paul himself would not have been mindful of sin if not for the law, because it brings awareness of sin. He says, I wouldn't, I would not even been aware of what coveting is had the law said, don't covet. You have to be discipled. You have to be trained in this thought process. You don't just come, you don't just say with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, and then suddenly you start doing everything right. First John 1 8 would refute that. Say that you think that you're without sin, you're a liar. So I understand that, and I know there's a lot of people that may be watching this right now that struggle because they they believe like this pastor believes, and they'll say, Well, look, you don't have to learn the law, it's just going to be in you now. 
right? And this is where we've had entire debates with pastors on the application of the new covenant and how you still got to learn the laws. You don't get them put on your heart permanently until the resurrection. But part and parcel with this teaching of dispensation theology, they say the moment you put your, your faith in Christ, you get all the laws in your heart and you're just going to start walking them out because that's how the changed person you are. You don't need to learn them anymore. Well, then what's the point of going to make disciples? Why would Yeshua tell people to go make disciples? He didn't go say make converts. Just just, just make sure they just confess me with their mouth and believe in their heart, and then you can walk away. No, he said go make disciples of the nations. That means you have to teach them on a, over a long period of time to change their behavior, and you monitor their behavior so that you make sure they're getting it. This is what the interaction and the back and forth of these letters with Paul and his churches are all about. This is why 1 Corinthians is him reprimanding the, the Corinthian church for all their bad behavior. They didn't do the law and the prophets that he taught them. So this is why we have to we have to know. This is why he says, I would not even have been mindful of sin if not for the law, because he tells you what it is. So we've actually done um well, he goes, we've done large videos on this. I can't get into this tonight. I've done some videos on it in the past. But he goes on to conclude, no matter no matter how you think he's, how difficult this wording is here with some of you, some of the folks that struggle with this stuff. And they think that what he's saying in this moment here to be alive, uh, I once was alive apart from the law when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. If you don't understand this, it's just because you don't understand the Old Testament. That's fine. I've done, we've done big videos on that, but I can't stress that tonight because he concludes all of his statements by saying, so then that's a conclusionary statement. Just in case you were confused about all the stuff he was explaining here, the law is holy, the commandment is holy, good behavior and good. Right behavior and good. The law is set apart. The commandment is set apart. Right behavior and good for you. He goes on to say that the law is spiritual. But he's unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. When it goes into the famous, I don't, I do what I don't want to do speech. But then in chapter eight, he tells you that if you want to be spiritual, then you're going to submit yourself to the law of God right here. The mind of the flesh is death, but the mind of the spirit is life and peace because the mind of the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit itself to God's law, nor can it do so. So I don't want to be in the mind of the flesh. I want to be in the mind of the spirit, submitting myself to God's law. It's right here. It's very simple. This is what Paul taught to everybody consistently everywhere. He even has to defend himself against accusations that he wasn't teaching the law of God here in Acts 21 to the other disciples when he arrives in Jerusalem. The other disciples tell him when they heard this, they glorify God. And they said to Paul, you see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed and all of them are zealous for the law? Oh, they believed and are zealous for the law. Are, are, are these guys Judaizers? Are all the disciples Judaizers? Because they're they're relaying to Paul what's been going on in Jerusalem with all these other people that have believed and are zealous for the law are suddenly all of the apostles of Yeshua, now Judaizers. He says, but they are under the impression that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to forsake Moses. So somebody's been lying about Paul, guys, just like they do today. Telling them not to circumcise their children or observe our customs. What should we do then? They will certainly hear that you've come. So this is Peter and James telling him, therefore, do what we advise you. There are four men 
who've taken a vow. This is from number six. Take these men, purify yourselves along with them, and they pay their expenses so they can have their heads shaved. Then everyone will know that there is no truth to these rumors about you, but that you also live in obedience to the law. So the next day, Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. Then he entered the temple to give notice of the date when their purification would be complete and the offering would be made for each of them. Guys, think about what we just read. The book of Romans, he's talking to the, the believers amongst the Gentiles. He's teaching them the law of God. And he tells them literally the law is good, holy, and right. And if you walk in the spirit, you subject yourself to God's law. He then says, you got to learn it because if without it, you don't even know what, what sin is. He gets back to Jerusalem and the other disciples tell him, hey, we've heard that you've been te- telling people they don't have to keep God's law. Prove to this, prove to us that this is not right. And go to the temple, do the law from Numbers chapter 6 with this sacrifice and show us that you are in obedience to the law. And he does it. Is Paul now a Judaizer, Mr. Pastor? Is that what we are to take away from your words versus the scriptures? Or should I just take away from the scriptures that your words are mistaught, misspoken? It's so, it's so infuriating. We're almost done, guys. Now, I mentioned Martin Luther, that Martin Luther loved this book. It was one of his favorite books. He called it the Great Charter, the Magna Carta, the, the, the uh, Superior Charter. It became known as the Charter of the Reformation. And I brought with me Martin Luther's commentary uh, to the Galatians. I'm not going to read it to you. It's quite lengthy, but I'm going to read a section to you. And um, in, the, in the beginning of his um, commentary to the Galatian church, he talks about the greatness of the book of Galatians in that it highlights the great doctrine of justification by faith, which you know Martin Luther was all about. And he says, um, of our justification, that is to say how not by ourselves, neither by our works, which are less than ourselves, but by another help, even the Son of God, Jesus Christ, we are redeemed from sin, death, the devil, and made partakers of eternal life. And then he said, therefore, amen, 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 and amen. In that statement, Martin Luther, Martin Luther's not wrong, but if we go to define our terms and don't just start applying different meanings to what those things are, Yes, we have been redeemed from sin, death, the devil, and we are partakers in eternal life. Yeah, that's the promised resurrection to come, where we get that permanent good behavior put on our new bodies and new hearts. But right now, what are we doing? We're justified by faith because what? we, For one, justified to me means made right with God. Because why? Because we're trusting in the Son of God to make atonement for us in his priestly position. As Hebrews 8, 1-5 says, he's in the temple in heaven making atonement for us. This is, this is the job of a high priest. So this is how we're justified before God, and we believe in who the Messiah is and what he's doing for us. We believe he can cover for our sins and then raise us to eternal life. So in this one moment, Martin Luther's not wrong. It's where they take it. It's where they conclude it. It's where they isogetically impose their own ideas onto the text. And I don't agree with everything Martin Luther wrote either. But here we go. For I am compelled to cast away all shame and to be bold above all measure, which he is in this book. Martin Luther said, the letter to the Galatians is my letter. 
I am wedded to it. It is my wife. I don't know how his wife felt about that statement, but uh, I guess uh, Billy, she liked it uh, as much as he did, like you guys did. So, so you're off to a good start. If Martin Luther said that about this book. So at the beginning of his, I, I've clipped this out, but at the beginning of this, uh, this sermon here, he, he pointed out two people in the audience that had come to him privately before, I guess, weeks before or whatever, and talking about the book of Galatians, about how they met because the book of Galatians was their favorite book. And so that's why he's referencing the people in the crowd. Um, but if you heard what he said about Martin Luther, how strong Martin Luther spoke in favor of the book of Galatians, now you can start to see why, look at the process over time. You can start to see that rabid fervor for the moment you say anything that they they don't they equivalent in the minds of most people is the grace of God nullifies the law of God because they take things out of context from Galatians three twenty one and uh, Romans chapter six where they say well I'm not under law I'm under grace you're not under the penalty of law yeah you're under the grace of God extended to you through the priesthood of Yeshua you get atonement now just like Paul tells you in First Timothy two five yeah. So if you understood the law, you would know the references he's making. But since these pastors actually don't study the law at seminary, they study the, the latter part of the, of the Bible, the, the New Testament, or what they call the New Testament. So this is why they're confused about the definitions of words and why they can take something like Martin Luther, whom I think was also confused about the definitions of words, and they can take his writings and they can champion the book of Galatians with such fervor. The moment that you say anything about the law of God, they take Martin Luther's very anti-Semitic fervor and say, well, that was for the Jews. And if you try to tell me that I have, I'm I, as a believer in Christ, that I also have to do the feasts of God and the laws of God, then you're a Judaizer. Oh, and also Galatians tells you that, you know, I have the gospel of the grace of God on my side. And I don't need the law of God. So they get this because, you know, Martin Luther is championed by the seminaries that these pastors learn from and get ordained by. So there's a, there's a lot. There's a, it's not just as simple as saying this pastor at this church doesn't read the front of his Bible. That's a part of it, but there's more involved. There's a lot more involved. It's this hundreds of years of tradition of just error compounded upon error. But these guys are supported by the ministries, the seminaries that ordained them so they can say they're an ordained minister in this denomination and get control of a church. So therefore they're supported behind the scenes by the people that they view as their peers. And they think, okay, well, they're preaching sound doctrine because this is what I was taught in seminary. Guys, sometimes, you know, uh, this is going to sound harsh, but the more and more I study this stuff and this phenomenon and with so many pastors saying stuff in so blatant contradiction to the scriptures, the more it just makes me think that the most people that, ah, I got to be careful. It makes me feel like the people that advance in seminary the best are the most impressionable. That's probably the nicest way I can put it. And they, they have an internal need to be accepted by the peer group of people at seminary, uh, the, the professors, the teachers, the deacon, the dean, I should say, or whomever, and, and to be approved by them. And the phraseology and the wording that they use, um, 
because when they come out, they're just emboldened and they're extra difficult to speak reason with. And when you show them verses like I have tonight that contradict their statements left and right, they continue to just look at you just like we have a, a brother in the crowd tonight in the live chat doing the same thing. Regardless of anything I say, he just keeps repeating mantras, just keeps repeating mantras over and over and over again that the scriptures can contradict 100%. And it just, make, it just makes me wonder what is it within, within that personality type um, that, that makes them think that they've believed this lie that the devil sold them, that you just have to believe in Jesus and then you don't disciple after Jesus' behavior. What kind of crazy lie is that? Don't be fooled. That is a lie. If you, in fact, let me show you guys something. And this is show you, show you how interesting this is. Cause this just I actually made a clip of this, of a, a debate I did with an, a, a theologian apologist just recently is probably like a year ago, but I, I made a clip just recently um, where I, I say in this, in this passage here, um, I say in this conversation with this um, apologist and theologian at the beginning of this clip, I say to him, you know, being a believer in Jesus means that you do the behavior of Jesus. You disciple after him and watch his face when I say this, because it's really interesting to see his face. Um, let me make sure you guys can hear it. You know, I've just come to a very different understanding because of my journey through the word. And so therefore, to me, I understand that sin is a transgression of God's commandments. Uh, those he multiple times in, in the Old Testament, he calls those commandments eternal. Yeshua several times in the Gospels says for us to do the Father's commandments uh, specifically. Um, and so what I is just, the, what is the commandment? What is the work that God requires for, you, for us as believers? So, I mean, we have an example of Yeshua for the behavior to practice, but ultimately it's to, to believe to, to believe in Yeshua is to practice his behavior and become his disciple. And this is why we have. Okay. <laughs> Did you guys see the face he made? <laughs> when I said to believe in Yeshua is to practice his behavior and come as disciple. And do you guys see the face that this guy makes? Cause this, this, he, he's, I don't know if he's ever thought about it. He, he was like, wait a minute, that, that makes way too much sense. And, but he can't agree with that. Otherwise he would have to start telling everyone who listens to him that, Hey, you do need to do the behavior of Christ, which is the law of God. Watch his face. To practice, but ultimately it's to, to believe to, to believe in Yeshua is to practice his behavior and become his disciple. I mean, this is why we have here. <laughs> he's he's baffled. He's baffled. So in like manner, this is because this is what they're taught, guys. So that's why I said at the beginning, we don't want to bash any pastors or, or believers um, out there that may hold to this line of rhetoric. And that's all it is because it's not scriptural context. It's not scriptural citation even. It's rhetoric. It's denominational dogma that is not in line with the scripture to tell people that you just believe in Yeshua and then nothing else after that because, oh, because you believe him and now the spirit that's been deposited in you is going to cause you to automatically do all the right things, the good works that are intended for you. And to even reference the actual information that Yeshua referenced is somehow adding to the gospel. It is double think. It is contradictory to common sense, logic, or even reading comprehension. But this is what is propagated. And this is why we have to be very firm in knowing the scriptures, but loving 
to try to relay the truth to them. We do not want to create division. You're not going to win anyone like that. But yeah, this is the best I can do in my understanding in order to show you what's being said, which many of us have seen this because we, we grew up in a church that said something similar to this. But at the same time, we don't want to make fun of them. We don't want to you know denigrate them. Um, I do want to extend respect to them as an individual because in their own life, they did sacrifice to, to make for their whole life about preaching Christ. It's just, unfortunately, they're preaching something contradictory to actual discipleship to Christ. And this is heartbreaking, truly heartbreaking. So Galatians is sort of a mini book of Romans. It takes those same central themes that are written about in length and in depth in the book of Romans, justification by faith especially, and highlights those because of the particulars uh, that were going on in that church. In this book, the word law appears 32 times. The word faith appears 21 times. So largely he is writing about the difference between trusting in the law and relying on Jesus Christ by faith. That's why you see those, those books. And that's called eisegesis, guys. That's him imposing his own definition and understanding onto that statistic of why those words are used those many times in the book of Galatians. Let's hear it again. This is not what Paul intended for the use of the word law 32 times and the word faith 21 times. This is called eisegesis. And I just want to train you to catch this when you hear teachers and pastors doing this. Appears 32 times. Oh, sorry. The word especially and highlights those because of the particulars uh, that were going on in that church. In this book, the word law appears 32 times. The word faith appears 21 times. So largely he is writing about the difference between trusting in the law and relying on Jesus Christ by faith. Did you guys see the dichotomy he just made? He imposed a false dichotomy, a false choice that the book of Galatians does not present to you. He took a statistic of, oh, the word law is used 32 times in the book of Galatians. The word faith is used 21 times. So therefore, Paul's trying to tell you, this is how many times, this is why you shouldn't trust the law and you should trust in faith in Christ. Like that's called eisegesis. That's, that's called him just pushing his opinion onto the text. And it's, it's, it's weaving, it's weaving into some unrelated uh, stat about the book of Galatians and actual theological presupposition. It's, uh, it's, it's just irresponsible. That's why you see those, those books um, or those words uh, come up so often. <laughs> no, it's not. All right, we got one more little clip here. And this is where, um, you guys, I, I promise you, uh, in the following episodes, as we, as we continue to flesh out um, this idea on Galatians and reviewing the whole book, um, the clips that I'm going to be showing in later episodes are, are 10 times worse than what we're re looking at tonight. Um, I just, uh, yeah, we just got to walk in love. So personal, chapter one and two. The second section, doctrinal. 
He talks about justification by faith, cites several examples, gives several scriptures about how we are saved, not by any of our works, but all by Christ. The last section, chapters 5 and 6, are the practical chapters. It's what all of the doctrines should lead to. And in particular, he wants to show the legalists, the Judaizers, that the doctrine of grace leads to good works. They were. All right. Did you guys see? Did you guys hear that? He's, he's again, he's trying to paraphrase the whole book of Galatians real quick, and he's just getting it completely wrong because he's still using that improper definition of Judaizing, which he calls legalists. By his own definition, he would have to call Yeshua, his Messiah, a Judaizing legalist. But it's, you know, that's where the double think comes in. He can't, he's not thinking like that. We're worried if you just preach grace, you're, you're going to let people do whatever they want to do. And, and they. Let's back it up a little bit. Practical chapters. It's what all of the doctrines should lead to. And in particular, he wants to show the legalists, the Judaizers, that the doctrine of grace leads to good works. They were worried. If you just preach grace, you're, you're going to let people do whatever they want to do, and, and they, they won't obey Christ. They need the parameters of the law. They need the strict bumper. Do you guys even hear what he just said? He's just trying to say the doctrine of grace. He, he's, he's imposing thoughts onto the text. He's trying to say Paul was, was trying to teach the people in Galatians um, to not listen to the Judaizers because you know, he was trying to teach them in chapters 5 and 6 of Galatians that that uh, the doctrine of grace would lead you to good works. And he was worried and he was worried that the people would be thinking that, oh, if uh, if we don't learn about the law, then we're just going to be left out to do nothing. We won't have any instruction or guideline. And we won't obey Christ. You guys hear the double speak to obey Christ is because of the grace he extends to you as your high priest. That's you putting your faith in him to obey Christ is to do the law of God. That's what Christ commands and teaches. That's, he said, my doctrine is not my own. It's for my father. It's John 7, 14, or John 7, 16. He says, everything he does and says, he saw what the father do and say. And this is, this is, he tells you to keep the commandments in multiple places. Matthew 23, 1 through 3, Mark, Mark, Matthew 19, 16, 17, uh, Luke 10, 25 through 28. Everywhere, he tells you to keep the commandments. John 15, 8 through 11. Everywhere, Yeshua tells you to keep the commandments of God, Mark 7, 8 through 10. He reprimands the Pharisees for not keeping the commandments of God. To be obedient to Christ in the grace of Christ extended to you, the favor and blessing extended to you by Christ, results in your obedience to Christ, means you would do the law of God, the commandments of God, the commandments of Christ's Father, Yahweh, the Most High. It's very, 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 very simple. But the twisting, the twisting and the double speak confuses people. It's two good works. They were worried. If you just preach grace, you're, you're going to let people do whatever they want to do, and, and they, they won't obey Christ. They need the parameters of the law. They need the strict bumper guards of the law. Paul says, not so. The quickest route to spiritual... Paul says, not so. For one, the whole dichotomy, the whole hypothetical conversation he's portraying here is all convoluted in itself. But two, even if that hypothetical conversation were accurate and and the people that um, 
that Paul was teaching against were worried that if we don't teach them the law, they won't have any any uh, instructions. Paul didn't say not so. We just read from Romans six a few minutes ago where Paul says, or Romans seven, if I didn't, I didn't even know what sin was until I read the law. Of course, you would want to read the law. Of course, you have to. This is how we train our minds in righteousness. This is how we would learn right behavior. This is why Yeshua participated in going to the synagogue on the Sabbath, which is an eternal command to rest on the Sabbath. And it was their common culture to go on that day and read of the scrolls of the prophets to learn right behavior. So this is why Yeshua is going to the synagogue for that. This is why Paul has to has to defend himself against the false accusations that he wasn't living in obedience to the law, but he was, as we read in Acts 21. This is... I, I don't... It must be. You guys know how, like in politics, they talk about how people get in their ivory towers and they're surrounded by a, a bubble of people that think like they do. And so then they kind of lose touch with the reality. Um, talking about like college professors and how they get so far off into communist, socialist, leftist ideals that, that are just con contradictory to basic human behavior and uh, counterproductive to people being effective in their societies and their communities. And it creates death instead of productivity. So it's this weird mental bubble of elitism that people in their ivory towers get in because they're around people that think and think about all the same things the way they do. I, that's the, the only thing I can think of is that maybe pastors fall into that same kind of thing. Because there's just so many passages in Galatians and in all the other letters of Paul that refute their ridiculous statements. There's so many passages, so many. I've, we've went over two dozen of them already tonight. I've done entire videos, a four-part series previously on the entire book of Galatians as well, but we're doing a little bit different analysis with this. But there's just so, so many. Paul constantly is teaching the law of God all throughout his letters to all of the, all the people that he discipled. It blows my mind. It just, it's got to be... If they're a sincere and genuine pastor, it's got to be they are just in their own little bubble. And because many of them don't actually take questions from the audience, or as we've experienced, my wife and I were talking about this, you know, in, in the, the crowd of the growing, the increasingly growing crowd of believers who come to realize the commandments apply to them, and that's part of their discipleship. They start to go to these pastors in their private times and ask them questions, and many of them get kicked out of the church as a result of it. There's a ton of people like that in my audience tonight. So maybe they're creating their own bubble and then reinforcing it. I don't know. I don't know. At some point, it seems I try to be loving and gracious, but at some point it makes me think that these guys are afraid. That's the best. If I want to be generous, I would think that they must be afraid of losing their income, their position their you know, cause it's not, they don't, they may not care about having power over people, but just literally they're getting paid by the church to be the pastor. And they're, you know, they got their kids in dance and they got their son's dentist appointment coming up and they're saving for college. And they, you know, their wife, they want to take their wife out for their anniversary, all the normal things in life. These people are normal people too. You know what I'm saying? And they've gotten into a lifestyle now being paid by their congregation to say what their denomination says. 
So even if they ever did come to different thoughts on their own personal study, there's a strong temptation for them not to reverse course or to adjust what they're saying because they would get kicked out of their denomination, removed from their place of pastoralship at their church, and have to start their own church from the ground up. And they would take a massive pay cut. Massive. So it could be could be just simply the financial pressure. I don't know. Pray for them, guys, because this stuff is rough. This is rough. And this is just like the first 20 minutes of this hour-long message. We're going to go over other parts of it in future episodes, but... Oh. The law. They need the strict bumper guards of the law. Paul says, not so. The quickest route to spiritual maturity is the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith. Now, so there it was. There's the bumper sticker phrase. There it is. Uh, we've, we hear it all the time. All the, all the, all the time. Um, but that is not what Paul says. Paul does not say the quickest way to spiritual maturity is to believing in the doctrine, the man-made doctrine of grace through faith in Jesus Christ. What did we just describe, guys? The word doctrine just means teaching. What is grace? The favor and kindness extended to you because of Yeshua. How is that favor and kindness extended to you? Well, because he can now mediate for you, but because of his position as high priest in Israel. What does the high priest of Israel do? He follows the law of God. So, so to, the quickest way to spiritual maturity is to do what your high priest is doing. This is why Paul tells you about spiritual maturity right here. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live in according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Yes, he's talking about spiritual maturity, setting your mind on the things of the Spirit. The mind of the flesh is death, but the mind of the spirit is life and peace. You only get life and peace at the resurrection when the law of God is put on your heart permanently. The mind of the, of the flesh is death, but the mind of the spirit is life and peace because the mind of the flesh is hostile to God. How is it hostile to God? It does not submit to God's law. Guys, for everyone out there who thinks you believe in Jesus, but you refuse to submit to God's instructions for behavior, you're in the flesh and being hostile to God. You're being immature in your faith. You're not spiritually mature. You're immature. And you fall exactly into our first verse tonight. We have much to say about this, but it's hard to explain because you're dull of hearing. Although by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to reteach you the basic principles of God's word. What have I been doing tonight? I've been showing the basic principles of God's word. You need milk and not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is still an infant, inexperienced in the message of righteousness. What does the word righteous mean? In the Greek, it's the word dikeo. It means right behavior. What does God call right behavior in all that, the whole Bible? calls it doing the commandments of God. That's what he says is good and right behavior. He says, but solid food is for the mature, spiritually mature, spiritually mature. Solid food is for the mature who by constant use. Oh, does this mean I just believe in Jesus and never have to do anything? I never have to learn anything new? No, by constant use, you have trained. What does this mean? You've trained your senses. Why do you, is it, oh, that sounds like discipleship. 
constant training, constant use. You've trained your senses to distinguish good from evil. You mean, I just don't know good from evil the moment I put my faith in Christ and confessing with my lips and believe in my heart? You mean I actually have to do something after that? This is, this is spiritual maturity, guys. Someone that actually, just like Yeshua, who was the utmost spiritually mature, submitted himself to God's law and did it perfectly. We don't have to do it perfectly. That's the best part. We can mess up. And he who did it perfectly intercedes on our behalf. He's the great mediator. He's That was the role that was given to him by the Father, to be our high priest, to make atonement for us. So guys, we'll pick up next time as we go into Galatians chapter 2, and we'll, we'll look at more of Galatians chapter 2 in the study guide from ne for next time, because um, there's a lot, there's, there's so much more. I mean, uh, we just touched a little bit, just a little bit on Galatians. Um, uh, we went over Galatians chapter 1, but we just touched a little bit on what the pastor was, that pastor we were listening to was breaking down Galatians um, because what's so interesting is he talks about it being broken up into three parts, chapter one and two, chapter three and four, and then chapter five and six. And he says chapter one and two is like him just explaining, opening it up, explaining who he's sent by, some details, but he skips over chapter two a lot. And I think it's kind of hilarious because, you know, it, there's a lot of things in chapter two that we're going to break down next time about the Torah and about circumcision, about the false brothers who are claiming different things and just how Peter and James and John uh, instructed Paul to do Torah and he does it. And there's just, uh, it's so frustrating guys. If you have any questions about stuff we talked about tonight, put them in all caps. I'll take a few questions before we're in the, in the live stream. We're already here at two hours, but I'll take a few questions for you. It looks like we got a large live stream tonight, 230 plus people. Appreciate you guys. Thank you guys for the super chats. Thank you moderators for helping us uh, get the, um, the spam bots out of the chat tonight. Seems to be a lot of spam in the chat tonight. Boy, they don't like me talking about. See, I remember getting a lot of spam in the chat when I, the last times I was reviewing Paul's letters. Isn't that interesting? All right. Shazane Pimp One is asking, what about Romans 7? It says, freed from the law when the husband dies. Well, yeah, he's repeating the law. So that's why he says um, in verse 1, he says, I'm speaking to those who know the law. So he's given you an analogy from the law about the process of what happens when uh, how the marriage covenant is is uh, changed once the someone dies. So I'll pull it up on screen real quick. So he says, so Shazane, no disrespect to you, brother, but my question would be the same for you as well. Do you know the law? This is what we ask people that ask us this question all the time because they're not realizing the, the metaphor applied of this law to what he's talking about with the resurrection. Because this whole thing is about the resurrection, this, this whole passage area from chapter six, the middle of six, all the way through eight or the, the end of eight. He's all giving, he's all expounding upon the idea of the resurrection that you're promised through Christ. And this is one of the ideas he's trying to say, when you die in the body, then you're freed from the, the sin of the body because you're going to get this glorified body that you get to live with him. This is why you'll be released from the penalty of the law. You'll be released from the law once you die. He says, but having now, having died to what bound us, 
we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit, not in the old way of the written code. So this is what he's he's referring. It's a big, it's what we call prolepsis. Um, I think that, I don't know if you've seen us before. I don't recognize your name, brother, but welcome. Um, this is what we call prolepsis is something that Paul talks about. The promise of that's coming to you and what Christ did for you. He speaks of it as if it's already happened, which you can guarantee is going to happen because that's how much faith we have in Yeshua to fulfill what he's promised us. So this is why it says, it speaks of like we're already citizens in heaven. We've already uh, attained the uh, the resurrection. We're already a new creation, even though technically we're not there yet. We haven't gotten to the resurrection yet. In the same way, he's like, now because of what's happened here, because Christ is here, we don't need this babysitter anymore because when Christ showed us perfectly how to live this, we got the perfect example of him. So we, I'm conflating a little bit with Galatians 3, but in, in uh, verse 6 here, but now having died to what bound us. So that's, he's giving the, uh, the comparison of in the law with the marriage the husband and wife were bound to each other until one of them dies. So that's how he's he's expressing Deuteronomy chapter 24 in reference to this um, analogy of the promise of the resurrection. So I just hope that that's uh, there's a I've done entire teachings on it, but I'm trying to give you the short answer. Uh, he still goes on to say no, just in case anyone's confused. He still goes on to say, shall we sin? No, because he's not telling you you don't have to do the law. He's saying the penalty of not doing the law perfectly, right? This is what you did, the being under the law because you've sinned. You're atoned for by Christ. And at the resurrection, you get the law put in your heart perfectly. So you'll be freed from the penalty of the law. You'll be freed from what bound you in the law so you can walk in the newness of the spirit. Why? Because as he explains in 1 Corinthians 15, you get a spiritual body at the resurrection. So that's how you're going to be walking in the new way of the spirit. And you have the law written on your heart permanently as the promise of uh, the new covenant. So you never have to learn the law at that point. You never have to um, fail. You'll never fail. You'll never sin again. You'll never transgress the law. So this is, like I said, again, if you know the law, you can get the analogy and the comparison and the application. This is why we always try to lovingly share with people, uh, please, let's study the front of our books so that we can understand the law. But thank you for your question, brother. I appreciate it. Uh, Kindig Kindig is asking, I understand we are not the bride. What is the difference between the called and chosen? Uh, well, those who are obedient, brother. This is many are called, but few are chosen. We are only chosen if you are obedient. This is why Yeshua says you stand before him for every word and deed you will give account. Revelation 20, 11 through 15, and also Luke uh Matthew 12, 36, I believe. So we will stand before Yeshua at the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for every word and deed. Everyone is called to obey the obey the scriptures. Everyone is called to obey God, right? To do right behavior. But only a few are chosen for salvation because they actually did it. They actually practiced it in their life. They didn't mean they're perfect. They don't have to be perfect at it. You just have to practice. You have to show him, hey, look, I, I want to do your behavior. I'm your disciple. Like that's the point of discipleship. So that's the difference between called and chosen. Everyone's called. Not everybody's chosen. Um, the purpose of the parable of the wise and foolish Jerusalem is awaiting the bridegroom. Well, do Torah. That's that's the big purpose. Matthew 25, the, the, the women without oil, the women that did not put righteousness into their life. They weren't prepared. Um, hopefully that's a decent answer for you, brother. Infinity, we're going to be exegeting Galatians 3.12 uh, in this series when we get to it. But... In all honesty, brother, I think it's brother. 
Um, I've already exegeted it in previous with uh, our testing Paul series. If you want to go back and watch it, you're welcome to. And uh, I exegeted it in my heavy regulation series in part four, an hour and a half video. I went over the entire text of Galatians. So I've got two different resources for you to go check those out if you'd like to. But um, in all honesty, brother, I don't know if you'd believe anything I said anyway. You haven't shown me that you do. It seemed like you just like to argue. All right. I think I saw one from Michael, but my screen. Yeah, Michael Stevens asks, what do anti-law people say when you point out Messiah enforcing the law during the millennial reign? Well, Michael, I've gotten mixed reviews or mixed answers, I should say, when I've asked people this. Um, some will tell me that, well, that's a new dispensation because they're dispensationalists, right? They think that God deals with people differently in pertaining to the law of God. They think that he gives some people the law at different times in history and some people he doesn't. And they say, we're in a time period now where we don't get the law, but in the millennial reign, they will get the law again. And it's just, it's silly. It's silly. Other people just skirt the answer and never try to address it because obviously it would contradict what they believe. The law is eternal, as we've talked about before. Um, it's stated so in, in Psalm 149, excuse me, Psalm 119, verse 142, and also 160. Um, it's just literally the behavior of God in Isaiah 40, you know, 40, I think 42. Yahweh says that he is the Lord and he changes not. He tells us that the law is his behavior. It's not going away. It's not changing. Our Heavenly Father, the Most High, is not changing his behavior. And neither is his Son. As Hebrews 13 tells us, Yeshua, Jesus Christ, is yesterday, the same today and forever. So that means what we saw him do while he was on the earth, he's still doing in heaven, the same lawful, righteous behavior. That's why he taught us to do the same stuff, and he'll never change that instruction. Queen Funds is asking, uh, can you explain how we aren't like the Pharisees by adherence to the law, please, sir? Queen Funds, I don't know if you got here late, but I've been explaining that literally probably 10 times with specific statements. And then for two hours throughout the whole context of everything I presented tonight, I've explained, I've answered your question emphatically tonight by expressing to you, and I've quoted Mark 7, 8 through 10 multiple times. I also quoted Matthew 23, 4, um, and verse 10 of Matthew 23. And we also quoted, we also read on screen Acts chapter 21, uh, where Paul was accused of not doing the law, but then he does the law to show that he is obedient to it at the request of the actual apostles of Christ. Um, and I've tried to explain on multiple occasions, the Pharisees did not do the law. And, and sister, this is a, this is no slam or slight against you. I'm just saying this loud for anyone listening. I can't say this loud enough, apparently. I can't say this enough because at the end of my broadcast, after two hours of expressing to you that the Pharisees did not do the law and quoting scriptures that explain that, we still get questions like this. This is part of the cognitive dissonance that seems to be prevalent amongst a lot of believers. This is why this pastor that we reviewed tonight was conflating Judaism and Judaizing with the actual disciples and with people that were actually following the law of God and also believed in Christ. The, the Pharisees did not follow the law of God. They held it up like a shield, but they actually didn't do it. They, they superseded their obedience to the law of God with their traditions and command and their own made up nonsense. Yeshua calls them out for this everywhere he goes. Mark, 7, 8 through 10 is just one example. 
The entire chapter of Matthew 23 is another example. Everywhere he goes, literally, sister, this is why the Pharisees killed the Messiah. This is why they, they betrayed him to the Romans and had him crucified. It's because he was calling them out for lying, for being hypocritical, for telling the people that they were they were righteous men who, who upheld the law of God, but really they were leading the people astray as bad shepherds, teaching people commandments that were not a part of the law of God. This is why Yeshua told them to do the right thing, which was the law, actually the law, not their own traditions. I can't say this enough. It's, it's, it's literally the narrative between Yeshua and the Pharisees throughout the entire Gospels. Hopefully that's a decent answer for you. Hopefully it's heard. Uh, golden rule, we're, we're not really looking to get into a Sabbath uh, debate here. We keep the weekly Sabbath as instructed from Genesis 2 every seventh day. Um, and then there's also feast days that are considered Sabbaths as well. All right. I think I'll see. Looking for a few more questions. There was a whole bunch that skipped by real quick. I'm trying to scroll back up in the chat to find them. Uh, okay. Oh, it's okay, Queen Fonz. Yeah, just check out the whole video. You'll see me uh, talk about it in great, great depth. Country Dad is asking, who's the bride, Sean? All right, we've... I think country dad, I think you're kind of new to the channel. I think you've been watching us just for a few months now, but we've done quite a few videos on this. The bride is the new Jerusalem. Um, the people are metaphor. Okay. So this is where it gets into silliness with the Trinitarian thought process. But um, the father refers to Israel in metaphoric fashion and Hosea as a husband and wife in Isaiah chapter uh, 50, I believe he talks about giving a certificate of divorce. Same with Jeremiah chapter three. But the bride of the Lamb is the New Jerusalem. So there's a distinction there as far as the we're not conflating the metaphors. In fact, I've done an entire like four-hour roundtable discussion with a couple of other brothers, um, Jake Grant and Wes Blaze and Anthony Stover, where we talked specifically about the bride of the Lamb. I think you'd really enjoy it. Just go back through my previous videos. You should see it. It was about a year or so ago. Uh, we it literally talked for like four hours on the topic, and I go through all the scriptures and trying to show the what I just explained to you very quickly, which there's two metaphors being used in scripture. One is of, of how the father is a leader and a, an authority figure over Israel, over covenant Israel. The other one is how the bride of the lamb is the bride uh, to the, the son, not the father. So there's a, but what people do with that conversation is they conflate the metaphors. All right, guys, I really appreciate y'all. Uh, we're going to end the live stream tonight. Thank you so much for participating, everybody, and enduring. Um, I appreciate all the lively chat in the, in the live chat. And if you guys enjoy what we're doing, you want to support us, we got Patreon down below. We have page, PayPal. Um, it, uh, it's just a blessing to us. We're not Levites. We're not at a temple. It's not a tithe. Um, churches should not be telling them they take tithes. That's not for them. That was for Levites at a temple. Uh, all, all we say is, like, if you like what we're saying and doing, you want to see us keep going, it's just like a love offering. You know what I'm saying? Uh, we just have ways that you can do that in the video description below. We appreciate you guys. And uh, we hope that you guys have a, a fun nights. And we'll see you next time.